I don't know about you, but I'm sure ready for some fall weather. That struck me, especially the last couple days when the air conditioner went out at the rectory. (laughs) First world problems, as they say, right? As the temperature was rising, made me think of a stretch during my seminary time over in Rome. It was at the end of my first year, and we were in finals, and there was this hot stretch of weather. In the dorm rooms there, the seminary does not have air conditioning. But we did have the Tiber River close by, which seemed to generate these extraordinarily large mosquitoes. They called them tiger mosquitoes because you could actually see stripes on them. They're so big. So we were confronted with the dilemma. Either open your windows as it was approaching 85, 90 degrees inside, windows which had no screens, and take your risk with the mosquitoes, or keep them shut and suffocate. It was good for us, I think. So was walking 40 minutes to class in black during that weather. That was good for us, too. You know, one of the jobs I had during that time was to lead English-speaking tourists through St. Peter's Basilica. The first Basilica of St. Peter's was erected in the 300s. It was about 400 feet long, and just as a reference point, a football field is 300 feet. After the decline of the Roman Empire, the city and the basilica slowly began to decline and decay. But it wasn't until 1506 that the foundation stone was laid for the present-day basilica, which was built on top of the foundation of the first basilica. St. Peter's, as we now know it, was consecrated in 1626, 1,300 years after the consecration of the first church, and 120 years after breaking ground on the new basilica. It takes a while to build a worthy church. I hope you're here for the long haul. I began my tour in the square of St. Peter's. Both the squares and the basilica's architecture are classical, which takes the underlying patterns of order, geometry, and mathematics that reveal the evidence of the creator's mind and integrates them into the architectural design. So, for example, classical columns like on the Supreme Court or actually also like the ones that we have on, front of, on the front of our altar, classical columns draw upon the proportions of the average man, woman, and child, reflecting something of the creator's design of mankind. Even the terminology used for the columns indicate this. The top comes from the Latin word for head, capital and the bottom, the base, comes from the Greek word for feet. Columns, then, in classical architecture are not just functional, as in modern schools of architecture, but they're reflections of humanity, of the men, women, and children whose lives gave rise to the institution at work in that particular building. So when Barnabas and Paul went to consult Peter, James, and John, who were described as pillars or columns of the church, It was only natural to draw upon this school of architecture and work these truths into the design. To that end, St. Peter's Square has 284 columns, four deep along the colonnade, 
Now, reiterating the symbolism of the columns, there are 140 statues that stand on top of them, looking down, as it were, from heaven, encouraging the pilgrim church on earth. Pictured from above, the square of St. Peter's looks like a giant keyhole connecting with Jesus' giving Peter the keys to the kingdom. But it also looks like two arms extending out from the church or a mother ready to embrace the hundreds of thousands of pilgrims that can fit within the square. As you begin to ascend the steps of the basilica, you pass a prominent statue of St. Paul with his sword and St. Peter with his keys. Keys are obvious. The sword is a reference to the double-edged sword of the word of God, but also to the instrument of his execution, which is a traditional way of designating a particular martyr. So if you see some there like with a saw, you're like, oh, now I understand why he's holding that. The 11 apostles, along with John the Baptist and Christ the Redeemer, are spread out upon the facade the entryway to the basilica. And as you step into the facade, you cross what's called the threshold of the apostles, which was the entrance of that first basilica. St. Peter's is 275,000 square feet. It contains 44 altars, 11 domes, 778 columns, 395 statues, and 135 mosaics. The nave, the central area of the church, is over 600 feet long. That's over two football fields. It's the largest church in the world. The form of the basilica is that of a Latin cross, like here at the crucifix. And the focus of the pilgrim is drawn to the center, to the papal altar. The main dome above the altar soars high enough that the Statue of Liberty can stand beneath it. The dome is filled with angels and saints, with Christ, and at the center is a depiction of God the Father. Now, if you were to drop a plumb line from the top of the dome, from the depiction of God the Father, that plumb line would go down to the volcano, which is a canopy-like structure that stands 140 feet above the floor. And at the center of the canopy is a depiction of the Holy Spirit. The plumb line drops from God the Father directly through the depiction of the Holy Spirit and straight down into the center of the altar, which is a symbol of Christ. And then if it continued on down, it would go straight down into the crypt to the bones of St. Peter, which are now housed in specially made containers by NASA to prevent their decay. It's amazing, isn't it? Awesome. That's only just scratching the surface. Now, friends, what did we hear in the second reading? For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words may the hearers entreat that no further message be spoken, which is a reference to Moses and Mount Sinai. No, he said, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to a judge who is God of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood 
that speaks more eloquently than the blood of Abel. And what you celebrate, he's saying, is not far removed from you. You're not just recalling something. You're participating in something not only in the past, but also in what is already happening in the world to come. This is evident in Christ's giving thanks at the Last Supper. For what was Jesus giving thanks to the Father? For preserving him from death? Well, no, he was about to die. Jesus was giving thanks for the Father's fidelity to him, raising him from the dead. I mean, that moment of the resurrection, Jesus brought into the Eucharist, as well as all that has flowed from the resurrection, the opening of the heaven and the building of the heavenly Jerusalem with believers and the holy ones of God. You see, what we understand to be taking place in the liturgy and the worship of God takes shape in the design and construction of the edifices erected for such endeavors. And these, in turn, shape the understanding and faith of those thus engaged. So, for example, the angels that have been integrated into these candlesticks before you are not there just so you have something interesting to look at, but they are proclaiming to you, we are with you. And you are with us, shaping our minds and our hearts to know what it is that we do. Such is the case, should be the case in the edifice of the church. I mean, we know well that mass can be offered in a gym. But we also know well the spiritual poverty of such a place. It doesn't feel like a church, we might have said. But the same is said at times of buildings that are called a church but lack continuity with what's at the heart of the liturgy and miss the purpose for which they exist. Big, empty places with a little bit of decoration, religious decoration tied to the walls, remove that little bit of decoration, and it's a convention center, an auditorium. Likewise, the Russian author Dostoevsky said, Low ceilings and tiny rooms cramp the soul and the mind, to which we might agree with our short little 10-foot-tall ceilings. They also suggest that worship is a horizontal affair, not a vertical one that transcends space and time, as we believe. Traditionally speaking, to the degree architectural design, images, music, and such reveal the truth of what we've been drawn here to do, they are designated as beautiful. Aesthetics has to do with individual preferences. I like this color, I like this shape. Beauty has to do with revealing what's true, which creates awe and draws us to the good that stands behind what we see. What a precious opportunity we here at JP2 have been given to exchange wealth, energy, and time for edifices that have such extraordinary potential to help men, women, and children encounter God and be transformed into the saintly pillars, columns, that reveal something beautiful from the mind of the Creator.